0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. The nightmare corpse city of R'lyeh was built in measureless eons before history by the vast loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green, slimy vaults. H.P. Lovecraft, The Call of Cthulhu, 1928. Tonight I'm going to introduce you to one of the most mysterious constructions on the face of the earth. Thousands of miles out in the Pacific Ocean, built on top of a coral reef, is the awe-inspiring and megalithic site of Nan Madal. So massive and mysterious that none other than H.P. Lovecraft used it as the inspiration for the sunken city of R'lyeh, where dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. The song you hear in the background, folks, is a traditional Ponapean song that was recorded in 1984. The island of Ponape is where Nan Madol is located and it's part of the Caroline Islands. It used to be named Ascension and it's part of Micronesia. So on tonight's show, we're going to take a tour of this astonishing South Pacific island and the ruins associated with it. Now with that being said, folks, this episode is an episode of celebrations. First and foremost, I'd like to announce the fact that the Paranormal Sun has been listened to over 1,500 times across all of the episodes. And so, you, the listener, thank you from the bottom of my heart, wherever you are in the world. Now, I've had people listen to the the Paranormal Sun on six of the seven continents. You know, you would think Antarctica would be quite easy to crack, but obviously not. So um, six of the seven continents, folks, 15 different countries, and 26 out of the 50 states in the US. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening to me wherever you are in the world. And as always, thank you, everyone that has suggested my humble programs. Uh, both of them, the paranormal son and the fortunate son to others. For those of you who support me on Instagram, support me by word, word of mouth. Thank you, you know, so much. I, I couldn't do it without you. And as I've said before, you are truly the wind in my sails. I haven't felt well this last week. I've been quite ill, but you know, I keep trying to get up and keep trying to get to work on the show because you know I feel I owe it to you, the listeners. So thank you again so much for supporting me and supporting the programs. Now, as I said, this is an episode of celebration. So as a part of it, I'm doing a bit of an experiment. Um, I'm drinking kava as I record this episode. So many of you probably don't know what kava is. Kava is from the South Pacific, and it's a a root drink that you make in a traditional bowl, and you drink it, and it has some uh, sedative type uh, effects on you. So oftentimes people will describe not being able to feel their, their face, they'll have numb lips, etc. Now, it's the first time I've tried making it myself at home. I've had it with other people and I've had it in the Pacific Islands. But, you know, part of the root of nanmadol and the people of Pohnpei and Micronesia is their use of kava. And as I say, it's used all over the Pacific, uh, predominantly in Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, uh, Vanuatu, Cook Islands. And... So, you know, as a tie-in to that, I thought it would be quite interesting to have some kava, relax, and record this episode for you. And I'll have some photos of my kava bowl and me drinking some kava up on Instagram and on the website if you'd like to go and have a look. So with that all being said, again, thank you so much, folks. And as is always the case, there are people who really, you know, go above and beyond to support the show. And to those people, I give my hearty thanks to Lisa and Harry in North Carolina thank you so much. Uh, It's been a very difficult few months with everything that's gone on. So I appreciate your continued support. To Eddie and his family in Southern California, thank you so much, Eddie, for your support. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you so much. Uh, It really humbles me that with everything you've got going on in your own life, that you take the time to check up on me, take the time to check up on William. So again, thank you so much. To Chris and Max in Illinois and their family, thank you so much. Again, Chris, thank you as always for the kind words. And again, to my Chicagoland listeners, to my listeners all over the globe, my listeners in France, listeners in the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, you name it. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening. And to Scott and Matt at the Old 77 podcast, thank you so much. Folks, there's going to be some exciting news coming out about... A collaboration between myself and the old 77 that I'll try and get out to you this week I just need to touch base with them I don't want to go announcing things that um, you know they're not prepared to announce so uh, you know again thank you for all the support you've shown the quite unusual podcast again thank you so much for your support in this difficult time it is really appreciated now if all goes to plan folks I will have this episode up within the next few hours which here in New Zealand, it is Thursday evening. So I'm basically running a day and a bit behind of when I normally produce an episode. And again, I do apologize, I'm sorry for that. Again, I've been quite ill, and between being ill and William, I just haven't had the energy to really be able to give you the quality of show that I would desire to put out there. I've always felt that if you're gonna put yourself out there in the world, why not do the absolute best that you can? So rather than, you know, kind of crawling into the studio sick and kind of, you know, half-assing a program, I wanted to make sure that I gave you something quality. And trust me, folks, I've really done some deep diving on this episode. I've learned so much more that, you know, I'd only heard of while researching this program. Uh, it's really fascinating, The you know, the ruins of nanmadal It is amazing. And as always, I've got three awesome stories to lead off the content of the show with. I just wanted to give one other caveat to this episode. Now, this episode about Nan Madal, you need to take a lot of what is said with a grain of salt. There are a lot of rumors out there and a lot of conspiracy, well, not conspiracy, but, you know, just more rumors and kind of suppositions about how and why Nan Madal was built. And you will get this anytime you have a massive megalithic structure and a culture with no written language, so everything is passed down verbally. As always on the on the paranormal sun, I'm not here to tell you, you know, what to believe or what you should think. I'm here to present what I've found and what I found interesting, and you be the judge. You form your own opinion. Now also, if anybody has got the notion to call me out for, you know, saying, and, and this does happen oftentimes in this modern time, people basically say that if someone claims that something wasn't built by the native people, then that's racist because you're taking away from their hard work. As I've always said, the counterpoint to that is, if that's the way that you want to play it, then you need to make sure that you listen to the, the traditions and the history of said people that actually built those, you know, monuments or are in the area that they occupy. And oftentimes folks, you will find that they say they had nothing, to do with it. Their ancestors did not build these objects, okay? Such is the case with Nan Madol. So, you know, if you want to come at me and say I'm a racist or, you know, I'm I'm peddling some kind of white agenda, then you, you're only going to waste your breath because that's definitely not what this is about. Again, I don't expect anybody to come and attack me, but don't think that I'm some ignorant white boy that, you know, doesn't do his research or doesn't know history in these areas. So that's just a little bit of a caveat. And again, folks, we are going to get into some pretty, you know, fantastic claims. So make no mistake about it. I'm simply presenting them. It does not mean that I condone them or I endorse them. As always, that's part of the fun of this program, I feel, is that I leave it up to you. And what I feel remains a mystery in general. So folks, without further ado, time to get into the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who are new listeners to the program, the News of the Damned is my homage to Charles Ford. Now, Charles Fort was one of the founding fathers of the paranormal as we know it in the fact that he took the time to gather and populate information from magazines, newspapers around the globe, and put them in books and allow others to read these cases, everything from UFOs to sea serpents to mysterious falls of rain, therefore... I always do this segment at the beginning of every program, and I title it The News of the Damned because that was what Charles Fort referred to any information that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data, therefore The News of the Damned. Now tonight's program, folks, is probably going to set a record. We're probably going to be marching towards you know, close to 90 minutes. I won't know until I do the final edit, but this is going to be quite an epic one, so make sure you lace up your boots and you're ready to listen. Now, all three of tonight's articles, um, pardon me for being a bit lazy, I've got them all from coasttocoast.com, coasttocoastam.com. But I found three excellent stories there in my first look, and I spent so much time on the actual Nan Madol topic that uh, I thought these were all fitting. So the first one here, folks, um, this one is something that you would only expect to read on the internet. And it says, video, American flag destroyed by Bigfoot. And this is from Tim Bernal. So it says, a Bigfoot researcher in Nebraska believes that the famed cryptid may have been behind a mysterious incident in which an American flag at a cemetery wound up inexplicably destroyed. According to a local media report, the tattered and twisted old glory was discovered over Memorial Day weekend in a graveyard located in the community of Garrison. Since that time, residents have theorized that the destruction of the flag was either the work of thoughtless vandals or perhaps due to some weather event. However, a recent examination of the sullied stars and stripes by a local Sasquatch researcher has given rise to a new suspect, Bigfoot. Harriet McFeely, who owns the Bigfoot Crossroads of America Museum in the nearby community of Hastings, was recently granted access to the flag and pointed out a number of areas where the damage appeared to indicate that Sasquatch was to blame. In a video of her study of the shredded cloth, see above, She notes a number of areas where the torn pieces appeared to be purposefully bound by way of dexterous hands. She argued that those loops and knots are similar to cases where it is believed that Bigfoot had braided the manes of horses. Pressed by an incredulous resident for an explanation of how a massive creature such as the Bigfoot could have pulled off such such elaborate handiwork in lights of its enormous size, McFeely posited that they have kids who possess far smaller fingers than their older counterparts. She also observed that learned behavior in childhood, such as braiding, can be continued by a practitioner well into adulthood, regardless of how big they grow, once they have mastered the skill. McFeely's analysis of the flag was apparently persuasive enough to the cemetery that they have decided to donate it to her museum for display as a possible piece of Sasquatch evidence. While some may be dismayed to learn that Bigfoot could have been behind the desecration of the American flag in light of the creature's status, as this country's most beloved cryptid. Ascribing some kind of political message to the act would almost certainly be an error, as it is highly unlikely that Sasquatch understands the symbolism associated with old glory. Isn't that the truth? Were Bigfoot made aware of the importance of the flag, we'd like to believe that, like all patriotic Americans, the creature would treat it with the reverence it deserves. With all that said, what's your take on the curiously damaged flag? Could it have been torn and twisted by Sasquatch? Share your thoughts on the wild story at Coast to Coast AM Facebook page. So, yeah, folks, that's quite an interesting one. And I chose it because, you know, every once in a while I've got to throw you one of those that just sounds really out there in left field. So, um, hopefully, you've enjoyed that. And as always, I'll have a link in the show notes. And on to the second article. And this one is also got a video. So, again, I'll have a link. And as I say, it's from Coast to Coast. And this one was published on August the 24th. And it says, Watch. Russian cosmonaut causes stir with video of, quote, space guests, unquote. So also by Tim Banal, as they almost always are, all of the articles. A, a Russian cosmonaut aboard the International Space Station caused something of a stir when he recorded footage of a series of strange objects which he dubbed space guests. The curious clip was reportedly filmed by Ivan Wagner who was filming Aurora Borealis over the Atlantic Ocean between Australia and Antarctica when he noticed something peculiar. Posting the time-lapse footage on social media, he noted that there were five objects that suddenly appeared alongside the natural light phenomenon. Calling the odd objects space guests, he asked his followers on Twitter, what do you think those are? Meteors, satellites, or question mark? The unspoken object being, of course, aliens suggesting that authorities in his home country were taking the sighting seriously. Wagner went on to reveal that information was brought to the notice of Ross Cosmos Management. The materials were sent to TSNI MASH and the Space Research Institute of Russian Academy of Sciences for further analysis. As one might imagine, some UFO enthusiasts wondered if perhaps the cosmonaut had inadvertently captured footage of an alien craft. This speculation was fueled by a subsequent tweet From the russian space agency in which they noted wagner's post and called it interesting and at the same time mysterious video however upon further investigation it would appear that the visitors were most likely not of the extraterrestrial variety and instead were probably a group of spacelink starlink satellites which had been launched the day before the cosmonauts sightings now again folks do i believe there is something to the ufo phenomenon yes in my mind no doubt not everyone is hallucinating, drinking hillbilly moonshine or seeing Aurora Borealis, the planet Venus landing in a park in Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is it aliens? I don't know. Is it? The reality is, I firmly believe what government agencies said in the 60s and 70s, that basically 95% of all UFO sightings have a explainable reason behind them. And again, sometimes it is something as simple as a planet. Sometimes it is something more complex. But it's that 5%. And as I've said on this program over and over and over, as Richard Hoagland said, it only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. And again, it's that simple. Now, this may very well be the Space Link satellites. But again, it doesn't mean that. You know, we dismiss all UFOs. So, again, I hope that you find that interesting. And again, that's quite a big story because anything to do with the International Space Station and cosmonauts and them talking about, you know, purportedly, you know, potential otherworldly craft, you know, it is a big deal because it's out there in the public and it's all over the world. All right, folks. Now, on to the third and final article for this episode. And An area that I really need to be spending a bit more time on, but again, folks, I am not kidding you. I have got a backlog of show topics that runs into the hundreds. I've got so many programs that I want to do, so much I want to present to you and allow you to make up your own mind that some things get lost in the wash. And one of those things is I have not done any ghost or real ghost you know, topics as far as a whole episode related to that. So at some point, I would like to do that. And this one is titled, Security Camera Spots, quote, Ghost Woman, unquote, at Construction Site. And this one was from August the 21st, 2020. And there's a photo in the article here. A security camera stationed at a construction construction site in England captured an eerie image of what appears to be a ghost woman. The spooky snapshot was reportedly taken earlier this week by a CCTV system set up by the company Limitless Security as part of their job watching over a location in the city of Birmingham at around 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning. Manager Adam Leaves received an alert from his home computer that something had triggered a motion sensor camera at the construction site. When he checked checked his laptop to see what the camera had spotted, Leaves could not believe his eyes. As there was a woman in a long white dress walking through the construction site. The manager quickly phoned the on-site security guards to investigate the situation. However, despite arriving in just a few minutes to the spot where the where the unnerving interloper was seen, there was no sign of the ghostly woman. It's incredibly strange, Lees marveled. I have no idea what it could have been, but I didn't sleep the rest of the night. Lee's daughter subsequently shared the image on social media, where it has amassed thousands of shares and comments. While many observers suspect that the security camera may have caught a ghost on film, more skeptical-minded individuals argue that it was a clever hoax. What's your take on the image? And again, you can go and look at the Facebook page. Now, looking at this image here, folks, I know a bit about construction because um, my last role was supplying construction materials, and I've seen my share of construction sites. Now, this site has got those panel fences up, So it's not something that's easy to scale over, and the woman in the photo, if that's what it is, looks to be wearing a dress of some sort. So it's not something conducive where you would say, oh, well, it's just some teenagers jumped the fence and, you know, we're exploring this construction site. It really looks to me almost like it's a woman in a dress holding something, a bouquet of flowers or something similar. Now, again, could it be a hoax? Of course it could be a hoax. But nonetheless, it's very interesting. And I think that you should go over to Coast to Coast AM and check that out. So that's been the news of the damned for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you want more content, if you really want to know what's going on, folks, with the Paranormal Sun, again, you can find me on Instagram, uh, The Paranormal Sun. You can find me at TheParanormalsUN.com. That's my website where I host both The Paranormal Sun and The Fortunate Sun, my other podcast. You can find me on Facebook. I haven't bothered with other things like Twitter or TikTok. As it is, it's been quite difficult to manage everything for two programs and have any sort of a semblance of a life myself. But um, it is what it is. I am dedicated. I love doing it, and I love providing these programs for you. If there is anything you know that, that you'd like to say, you'd like to reach out to me, you can go and find me on any one of those venues. Uh, I've got a Patreon account. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon, you can support me directly on PayPal through the program's website through paranormalsun.com. Any little bit helps. And I appreciate anything that anyone does for me. I know it's a tough time around the world. Trust me. Um, I've definitely had my share of struggles this year. It has not been easy. So anything, kind words, comments, thank you so much to everyone who supports me in every way that you do. And I really do appreciate it. Now before I get into the main topic of tonight's program, and then Madal, just one other thing. I'm going to do my absolute best to pronounce these words. Micronesian is not an area or a culture that has a lot of people running around that you can ask how to pronounce things. So it's not easy. And I do apologize in advance for any place names or people names that I that I butcher, but I will do my absolute best with my phonetic knowledge of Pacific languages to try and pronounce them as close as possible. And one more thing also I forgot, you can also email me at theparanormalsun.com, or so, sorry, theparanormalsun at gmail.com. That's the show's email address. So without any further ado, Let's get into this. When you picture a Pacific Island, what's the first thing that springs to mind? White sandy beaches, gorgeous green jungle, waterfalls, stunning sunsets, you sitting on the beach perhaps, having a tropical drink, listening to the waves lap on the shore with palm trees swaying in the breeze? I'll bet the first thing that comes to mind for you isn't a stunning city built out of black basalt stones so large and awe-inspiring that most people would attribute this work to Giants off the coast of a remote Micronesian island lay the ruins of a once great city of man-made stone islands that represent the remains of megalithic architecture on an unparalleled scale in Micronesia and inspired the city of Rulia in H. P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. According to mainstream archaeology, evidence of the earliest human activity dates back to the 1st or 2nd century BC. The construction of artificial islets started probably about the 8th and 9th century AD. However, the megalithic structures were built in periods of the 12th to the 13th century AD, about the same time as the stone construction of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris or Angkor Wat in Cambodia. The complex of Nanmedal is constructed on a series of artificial islets in the shallow water next to the eastern shore of Ponape Island. The site encloses an area approximately 1.5 kilometers by 0.5 kilometers. The island's initial name was Sun Nan Leng, which means the Reef of Heaven. Nanmedal is the only extant ancient city built on top of a coral reef. Constructed in a lagoon and surrounded by water on three sides, with a stone wall enclosing the complex, the city is often referred to as the Venice of the Pacific. Nanmedal roughly translates to, within the intervals, referring to the elaborate web of tidal canals and waterways which crisscross the city, allowing transportation between over 90 small artificial islets. Because of its construction, Nanmedal appears to float on the water. Carved basalt stones, carefully placed on top of each other in crisscross patterns, form the walls of each of the 130 buildings. Some individual stones are light enough that even a single person can carry them, while the heaviest of the basalt pillars weighs over 100,000 pounds or 60 tons. Elsewhere, log cabin walls of stone reach 50 feet or 15 meters in height and are 16 feet thick or about 5 meters. The buildings stand on a foundation of natural coral that lies just below the water surface the largest structure is the naduas a royal temple surrounded by 25 foot or 7.6 meter high walls the ponapeans who had neither binding agents like concrete nor modern diving equipment sank the heavy stones into the lagoon using an unknown method the building remains and canals are stable enough that even after centuries of abandonment visitors can still tour nanmedal by boat The entire complex is a fitting tribute to the sophisticated methods of its ponipeian builders the scale and superiority of its stone architecture its artificial islet construction and the modification of the shoreline contribute to the significance of the site nanmadal seems to have housed the ruling elite caste of the sadalur dynasty it was a political and ceremonial seat of power as a means of control over their subjects sadalur dynasties had succeeded in uniting the clans of ponape the rulers forced local chieftains to leave their home villages and move to the city where their activities could be more closely observed during its height during its height nanmadol was the seat of the Satalur dynasty which united an estimated 25000 people across the entire island of ponape the satalaur were originally a foreign tribe who came to ponape and installed themselves as rulers of the island it is theorized that the Sadalur first appeared around the year 1100 and built Nan Madal around 1200. According to Ponapean oral history, however, the first Sadalur to arrive on Ponape were two brothers, Olishepa and Oloshapa, canoe-faring sorcerers who received their powers from the gods and used their magic to build Nan Madal. This so impressed the native Ponypeans that they invited the Sadalur to marry into their tribe. When one of the brothers eventually died, the other one declared himself king. The Sadalur built Nanmadol as a temple for the farm god Neheson Sapo, the god worshipped by the Sadalur nobility. Most of the islets served as residential areas. However, some of them serve special purpose, such as food preparation, coconut oil production, or canoe construction. Madal Powell, the mortuary sector, contains 58 islets, in the northeastern area of nan madol the centerpiece of the whole complex is the royal mortuary at the islet of nanduwas with its 7.5 meter high walls surrounding the central tomb enclosure archaeological and linguistic evidence suggests that certain islets were dedicated to specific activities depahu to food preparation and canoe building and pinaring a place of coconut oil preparation Sepinlan, place of the sky and and Kondarek, place for dancing and anointing the dead, to the activities their names describe, tombs surrounded by high walls can be found on Pinatkel, Karyan, and Lemenkul. Nanmedal became the most important political and religious center on the island of Ponape. The social system at Nanmedal is the earliest known example of such centralized political power in the western Pacific. The largest homes belong to the chiefly elite and archaeological excavations, have revealed objects that marked their owner's status in society. The city was built so that the nobility were isolated from the general population. At its peak, Nanmedal may have been home to a thousand people, the majority of whom were commoners, serving the nobility. There are no sources of fresh water or the possibility of growing food on Nanmedal, so all supplies had to have been brought in from the mainland, thus the large population of commoner servants. Nanmadal is the biggest center of, of the culture, which left numerous other megalithic structures scattered on neighboring shores and on the main island of Ponape. It all can be found in the area of about 18 square kilometers. Nanmedal was a sacred site filled with altars, oracles, and temples. Many Sadalures were priests, and this heavy concentration of religious leaders led to the development of numerous cults. According to oral history, later generations of Sadalure aristocrats became increasingly oppressive, often forcing the native Ponapeans into starvation. The creators of Nanmedal managed to quarry columns of basalt from a site in Sokis on the other side of Ponape and transported them more than 25 miles to the submerged coral reefs that are the foundations of Nanmedal. They created raised platforms, ceremonial sites, dwellings, tombs, and crypts. They used no mortar or concrete, relying solely on the positioning and weight of each basalt column, with a little coral fill to hold each structure in place. The oral histories of Ponape contradict the modern scientific explanations. They explain the ex- extraordinary feats in ways that present-day science cannot replicate. Oral histories of Nanmadol describe great birds or giants moving the basalt rocks into place. Others recall the magic used by the twin sorcerers, Olosopa and Olosipa, to create a place of worship for their gods. Some say a powerful magician living in the well inhabited region on the northwest of the island was solicited with sounds of varying pitch. He made basalt logs fly through the air like birds and settle down in their appointed places. Beyond these creation narratives, aspects of the oral history of Nan Madol, passed down through many generations, correlate with archeological evidence. For example, oral histories describe a series of canals cut to allow eels to enter the city from the sea. A well on the island of Ide is said to have housed a sacred eel who embodied a sea deity, and to whom the innards of specially raised and cooked turtles was fed by priests. Traces of the canal system, as well as a large midden or mound of turtle remains on Ide were among the archaeological evidence that supports these histories. In sixteen twenty eight, the warrior hero, Isokelikel, led an invasion of Ponape and defeated the Sadalur tribe. Ponapean oral history says that Isokelikel was a demigod and the vengeful son of the Ponapean storm god Nan Sapwe, who had grown unhappy with the tyranny of Nason Sapwa and the Sadalur. Historians believe that Isokelikel was the leader of a band of Micronesian settlers from the nearby island of Korossa. Iso Kelikel led his war band of warriors, women, and children to victory with the assistance of the oppressed Ponapean populace. Aisukalakil established a decentralized ruling system called Nanwarki, which remains in existence to this day. He took up residence at Nanmadal on the islet of Pekapua with the defeat of the Sadalur. Nanmadal's significance to the Ponapeans slowly eroded, and it was eventually abandoned in the 18th century. Artifacts found at Nan Madol include stone and, s- and shell tools, necklaces, arm rings, trolling lures, ornaments, drilled porpoise and fruit bat teeth, quartz crystals, lancet and disc-shaped bead necklaces, pottery, remnants of turtle and dog status foods, and large pounders used to process the root of the kava plant into a ceremonial drink. And as I say, I'm drinking kava tonight. Kava has a mild sedative, anesthetic, and euphorant qualities, and its botanical name literally means intoxicating pepper. Extensive personal adornments, food and kava, are evidence of Nanmadal's significance as the ceremonial center of eastern Micronesia. Lovecraft used the story of the ruins as the basis for his Raleh, a fictional sunken city and home to Cthulhu, appearing in the short story Call of Cthulhu, the nightmare corpse city of R'lyeh was built in measureless eons behind history by the vast, loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in the green slimy vaults, until the end. The real island of Ponape is also mentioned in the same story. Some have claimed that the ruins are the lost islands of Lemuria, although there is no scientific backing for this claim, or for that matter, the existence of Lemuria at all. Another unexplained feature of Nan Madol is its underwater tunnels, which connect the islands with one another. The tunnels were supposed to be an escape route starting from the center of the city towards the ocean. The tunnels were obviously man-made because of the way they were manipulated to connect the islands. The question of how they were made is still left unanswered. To this day, undersea explorers are still trying to discover a complete end-to-end tunnel. Now folks, here's the mainstream scientific theory on how and why nanmedal was built so radiocarbon dating and archaeological excavations puts nanmedal to be as old as 200 bc but the distinctive megalithic architecture was probably not begun until perhaps the 12th or early 13th century so again between 11 and you know between the 1100s or 1200s ad no written records on the island's history exist its myths and legends live through the oral tradition only now in 1595 Pedro Fernandez de Quiros, a Portuguese, landed from the San Geronimo. That was the name of his ship. The first white men to set foot on the island and supposedly saw the ruins of Nanmedal. All Quiros could write of the island was that it seemed partly cultivated, heavily forested, and well populated. In 1686, the whole archipelago became a Spanish possession and was called the Carolinas after King Charles II. Sailors who arrived there in 1820 reported that Nanmadol was recently abandoned. Now, I could not find anything about Pedro Fernandez de Quiros writing anything about Nanmadol. So I would say the jury's out as to whether he actually saw it. Nanmadol had been abandoned by the time the first Europeans arrived in 1820, as I said. And they said it was recently abandoned, most likely declining at the time of the fall of the Satalluer dynasty in around 1450. Some have claimed that the ruins are the lost islands of Lemuria. Now, this is from the Wikipedia entry on Nanmadal, folks. My friends over at the Quite Unusual podcast pointed out something very important this week. Don't necessarily believe everything you read on Wikipedia, but um, this is the information that I could find that, again, just this is the scientific standard explanation so it says, the elite center was a special place of residence for the nobility and of mortuary activities presided over by priests. Its population almost certainly did not exceed 1,000 and may have been less than half of that. So they're saying the population of Nanmedal, according to you know, archaeologists, was between 500 and 1,000. Although many of the residents were chiefs, the majority were commoners. Namnidal served in part as a way for the ruling Sadalua chiefs to organize and control potential rivals by requiring them to live in the city rather than in their home districts where their activities were difficult to monitor. And that's something that's gone on throughout, you know, history. The Romans, for example, once they would subdue a tribe, they would take the sons of the chief or the king back to Rome for education, but actually they were holding them hostage. So if that tribe uh, you know, Rose and Rebellion, again, they could execute the sons, you know, the lineage of the chief. Madol Powell, the mortuary sector, contains 58 inlets in the northeastern area of Nan Sorry, not inlets, islets. Most islets were once occupied by the dwellings of priests. Some islets served a special purpose, as I've talked about before, food preparation, canoe construction, and coconut oil pr- production. High walls surrounding tombs are located on Pentakel, kirian and Lemekul, uh, but the most prominent is the royal mortuary islet of Natuwas, where walls of 5.5 to 7.5 meters, or 18 to 25 feet high, surround a central tomb enclosure within the main courtyard. This was built for the first Sadalur, or again, according to mainstream science's explanation. Now, carbon dating indicates that megalithic construction at Nanmedal began around 1180 AD, when large basalt stones were taken from a volcanic plug on the opposite side of Ponape, The earliest settlement on Ponape was probably around 1 A.D., although radiocarbon dating only shows human activity starting around 80 to 200 A.D. The standard archaeological theory is that its basalt and coral rock structures were built from the 13th to the 17th century by a population of less than 30,000 people, and their total weight is estimated at 750,000 metric tons. Some of the columns used to build nanmadal are up to 20 feet long and weigh 80 to 90 tons. So the people of Pohnpei moved an average of 1,850 tons of basalt per year over four centuries, and no one knows quite how they did it scientists say that the basalt boulders some as heavy as 50 tons so you know again it's a bit of you know i've seen estimations that the biggest stone was 60. you heard me just say a little bit before it was 80 to 90 tons but let's just say 50. so it's saying scientists say the basalt boulders some as heavy as 50 tons were transported by rafts to nanmedal from the other side of the island and leveraged into place with coconut palm tree trunks the boulders were dragged inch by inch up long ramps before being piled on top of each other, they say. No mortar was used to hold them together. Transport by land is excluded because since the remotest times, downpours have flooded the dense jungle several times a day, and in addition, Ponape is very mountainous. Even if we assume that roads were hacked out of the jungle and that there were means of transport that could surmount the mountains and force a way through the marshy morasses, the heavy loads would still only have reached the southeast corner of the island and would have had to have been loaded onto ships. The scientific theory about lugging the stones by water on bamboo rafts does not hold water. While making a documentary movie about Nan Madal for the Discovery in 1995, for, sorry, for the Discovery Channel, all attempts to transport panels weighing over one ton failed. So, you know, they're talking that, they moved these stones that were 50 tons, and yet when they tried to reenact it for this documentary, anything over a ton failed, okay? Now, for those of you who don't know, there have been similar cases with things like the pyramids. There was a Japanese documentary done in the 70s or 80s, and they tried to build the Great Pyramids using you know traditional techniques, what the Egyptians would have had on hand, and it failed miserably. They were far behind schedule. They brought in modern technology like, you know, um, backhoes and uh, excavators and the like cranes to build this pyramid, and they still failed. And it was only a scale model pyramid, you know. We're not talking about anything near the full size of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So here we have two really competing theories. We've got the mainstream scientific, which again, I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but I just find it very dubious that every time we run into something like this mainstream science has all the answers oh no we know exactly what happened and completely uh you know going against what the local oral tradition is telling them and see this is what i uh, i don't really understand you have people who on one side say if you try to say that you know native people anywhere didn't build X Y or Z. you're racist because you're saying that they couldn't have built it but on the other hand you know you're basically contradicting your theory because when the natives tell you this is how it was done and you say oh no you don't know what you're talking about you are basically doing that you're patronizing them and you're saying that they don't know what they're talking about and it must have just been you know blood sweat and tears maybe it was maybe it wasn't I just always find this you know quite a fascinating uh paradox when I hear people you know, explaining how these things were done, the bottom line is no one was there who's alive. There's no written record. Um, I'm not saying it was aliens, okay? I'm just saying we don't understand what happened there. That's my personal feeling. Now, some of the other claims and theories about this, aside from the mainstream theories and aside from the oral traditions that you've heard me read out. Now, like I say, you know, some people have said that these are parts of Lemuria or Mu, which were two supposed Pacific continents, which have, you know, basically been shot full of holes by modern science. And I haven't really got into it that much to, in my mind, make a decision one way or the other. But uh, my understanding is plate tectonics basically rules out the theory of Mu or uh, Lemuria having existed. Now again, from Wikipedia here, it says Nanmadol has been interpreted by some as the remains of one of the lost continents of Lemuria or Mu. Nanmadol was one of the sites of James Churchward identified as being part of the lost continent of Mu starting in his 1926 book, The Lost Continent of Mew, Motherland of Man. In his book, Lost City of Stones, 1978, writer Bill S. Ballinger theorizes that the city was built by Greek sailors in 300 B.C. David Hatcher Childress, author and publisher, speculates that Nan Madol is connected to the Lost Continent of Lemuria. The 1999 book, The Coming Global Superstorm, by Art Bell and Whitley Strieber, which predicts the global warming might produce sudden and catastrophic climatic effects, claims that the construction of Nan with exacting tolerances and extremely heavy basaltic materials, necessitated a high degree of technical competency. Since no such society exists in the modern record, this society must have been destroyed by dramatic means. Now, you've heard me talk about Art Bell many times on this program. Whitley Strieber is the writer of the book uh, Communion, who claims to have been an abductee. Uh, Look, I do believe that there are definitely societies in this world and past civilizations that have been destroyed that we either know very little about and archeologists and, you know, the establishment have tried to piece it together and say, oh, no, no, we we, we know what happened, you know? And it's kind of like that jigsaw puzzle where they've got about a third or less of the pieces but they can tell you that it's a picture of a castle um i don't know what to think but i definitely do feel that there are lost civilizations lost cities and things on this planet that we know very little to nothing about as for nan madal and you know art bell and whitley streber's claims again as I, i i leave this up to you to make your own mind Another theory is that Madol and also many other sites around the world like the pyramids at Giza and in modern times the Coral Castle in Florida were built using either anti-gravity or acoustic waves to move the massive stones. And don't worry folks, this isn't the last time you're going to hear me mention this theory, because it is very prevalent when you talk about these megalithic sites all over the world. Now here is an interesting account by K. Masso Hadley, Penicell Lawrence, and Carol Jenks, research workers living on Ponape. What does tradition say about the mysterious ruins of Nanmadaw? The main building is referred to as the Temple of the Holy Dove in the legends. Only three centuries ago, Na- Nanu Sunsap, the dove god and high priest, was rowed through the canals in a boat, and opposite him sat a dove, which he had to look in the eyes at all, at all times. If the dove blinked, and doves do so constantly the poor high priest had to blink back a strange concept to us however the legends relate that originally the symbol of nanmadal was not a dove at all but a fire-breathing dragon the stories about the origin of the island and the buildings are woven around this formerly indigenous dragon the dragon's mother had excavated the canals with her powerful muzzle and so created the islets the dragon had a magician as a helper and this dragon magician knew a rhyme which thanks to the power of the charm, he could make the basalt blocks fly over from the neighboring island, and then, with the help of another rhyme, use them to make buildings without the inhabitants of Nan Madal even lifting a finger. Ponape natives tell stories of ghost lights appearing on Nan Madal. These lights are said to take on the appearance of almost flickering ball lightning-type phenomenon. Tales exist of people found dead, after spending an evening at Nanmedal and confronting these ghost lights. Ponapeans today lay little claim to Nanmedal as far as to who built it. They have no tradition of touching the quarry. They don't know who hewed the stone, when it was done, or why the work was ceased. They pretty much avoid Nanmedal and they consider it evil and taboo. To quote a U.S. Department of Interior report, the unwritten history of Ponape indicates that Nanmedal was constructed by or under the direction of people not native to the islands of Pohnpei. Okay, folks, so again, look, I'm sorry. I know we keep coming back to this point, and I know I'm beating a dead horse. But once again, here we are. You've got people out there who will say, if you come up with any type of alternative explanation of how Nan Madal was built, other than their scientific narrative, then you are a racist. But at the same time, they very smugly sit back and tell you, oh, well, you know, doesn't matter what the natives say, that their oral tradition says that they didn't build it and that it was, you know, built by one of these other methods or by another group. Uh, we know, we know better than them. They built it. So, yeah, it just gets a bit annoying. I wish that it was only Madol, but again, we find this all over the world. There are groups out there, I'm sure, that try to derail and appropriate, uh, you know, certain sites to try to push a, a narrative but that's not everyone there are people out there like me and millions of others that just really want to know what happened you know we we look at something like this we're fascinated we're in awe and you know how it is you get that gut feeling you hear a story you know it it could be you know a murder investigation and you hear an alibi and something just tells you this isn't right well you know again sometimes we just get that feeling that something isn't adding up here One plus one, and they're telling you it equals four. And you know it doesn't equal four. It just doesn't make sense. So again, folks, sorry to keep beating a dead horse, but I just want to point out the hypocrisy of this dual narrative that, you know, on the one hand, if you don't agree with what we say, you're a racist. And on the other hand, oh, yeah, but just ignore what the locals are telling us. Now, this next bit of information and this story, I had heard a bit about it. This is a story that many people never would have heard of. And it is a fantastical story. Okay. So if you think dragons and stones being flown by giant birds and giants and stones being moved by sound waves is out there, we're really going down the rabbit hole now. You wait until you hear some of these later accounts. Now, this story I found online and apologies for the bit of grammar in that, but from what I can gather, this was actually written by someone from Ponape, So, you know, English isn't their first language. And so there's a bit of, you know, uh, kind of stumble bumble into it. Now, just at the outset here, I want to point out so that you understand the timeline of this post and this conversation. The Germans somehow acquired, either bought or acquired from Spain, the Caroline Islands in 1889, I think so they were in control of it up until world war one when the japanese who were uh, with the allies at that time so this is 1914 they basically commandeered the islands and took them under their control and then the japanese controlled the islands from sometime between 1914 to 1918 up until some point in world war ii i've seen various different timelines some say that the Americans invaded and took control of the Caroline Islands in 1944, specifically Ponape. Others say that the Japanese didn't leave until 1945 at the end of the war. But either way, that will just give you a little bit understanding when you hear this person's story and why he's talking about Nazis, you know, i.e. Germans and Japanese. So here is the account in full. If you were to set foot on Ponape, you would know the legends. The people did not tell the Nazis. Nazis knew about the coffins and the treasures because it was part of Pohnpei's legends. That beneath the ocean lies treasures of great metal, silver bars, and more. The people of Ponape knew all along about the coffins, but did not dare to go and seek or move them from where they lay. It was sacred to us. What is in the Holy Land stays in the Holy Land. In the early 20th century, when the island was under German rule, Governor Victor Berg defied the royal ban, entered the sealed tomb of Nanmadal, and opened the coffin of the ancient island rulers. He found skeletons of giants 2 to 3 meters tall, which from memory is kind of like 6'8 to 6'10, up to well over 9 feet tall. A wild storm ensued, lightning flashed through the sky, and torrential rains whipped the black fortification walls. The next morning, on April 30th, 1907, after a delirious night, Governor Berg died. The Germans were diving there, but did not find the coffins. When the Japanese came, they had more advanced diving equipment. They found stuff that the Germans couldn't find. There was a dispute between the Germans and the Japanese when these coffins were brought up. My grandfather had to go as a translator. He is German working for the Japanese. He never saw the coffins, but told them they should put them back, which they never did. Also, here's another account. The reports of fabulous wealth had enticed pearl divers and Chinese merchants to investigate the seabed secretly, and the divers had all risen from the depths with incredible tales. They had been able to walk on the bottom on well-preserved streets, overgrown with mussels and coral. Down below, there were countless stone vaults, pillars, and monoliths. Carved stone tablets hung on the remains of clearly recognizable houses. What the pearl divers did not find was discovered by Japanese divers with modern equipment. They confirmed that their finds what the traditional legends of Ponape reported, the vast wealth of precious metals, pearls, and bars of silver. The legend says that the corpses rest in the house of the dead, i.e. the main house in the complex. The Japanese divers reported that the dead were buried in watertight platinum coffins, and the divers actually brought bits of platinum to the surface day after day. In fact, the main exports of the island, copra, which is dried coconut meat, vanilla, sago and mother of pearl were supplanted by platinum Rittlinger says that the japanese carried on exploiting this platinum until one day two divers did not surface in spite of their modern equipment when the war broke out and the japanese had to withdraw he ends his story as follows the native stones encrusted with century-old legends are probably exaggerated but the finds of platinum on an island where the rock contains no platinum were and remain a very real fact all this happened about 1939. I do not believe in the metal or platinum coffins. Hexagonal or octagonal basalt columns overgrown with mussels and coral could easily be mistaken for coffins under the water. Never mind. The fact remains that Japan exported platinum from Ponape after its mandate in 1919. Where did all this platinum come from? Now, that is directly from The Gold of the Gods by Eric Van Daniken, which was written in 1972. Now, here's another tale. Now I have never heard, no, I have never heard of any platinum caskets, said our native god Walter, who has lived here his whole life since his birth in 1940. But there is an underwater city here. Then he recalled his parents telling him that his great-grandfather had seen such a city. While fishing, his harpoon hit a turtle that dragged him to the bay floor. There he saw stone buildings, streets, and pillars, overrun by coral and shells. When he came up, His nose, ears, and eyes were bleeding and he couldn't speak. After one week, his speech returned, but when he described what he saw underwater, he died. The natives concluded the city was cursed." And that comes from a enmackerel.cz website. And I've got a link in the show notes. Nonetheless, very fascinating. And you can see why, you know, these people would be so scared if you've got tales like that, that actually happened, you know, that this guy basically told about the city and then died. And again, you know, curses, hexes, it's a very real psychological effect on people. So here are some of the skeptical thoughts on the platinum coffins. Now Van Daniken derives this story, not from firsthand knowledge, but from the explorer and artist Herbert Rittlinger. In his 1939 book, The Measureless Ocean, This is the same Herbert Rittlinger, by the way, who was a Nazi intelligence agent in Turkey for Hitler during World War II. His South Pacific trip is known to have occurred between 1932 Turkish sailing jaunt and his 1936 Amazon sailing adventure. Therefore, the platinum, if it existed, was recovered entirely between 1919 and 1935, with an outside chance of extraction starting a few years earlier, since Japan was the occupying power on the island during World War One. Now that again, that claim is simply stating because in Rittlinger's account, when the war started and the Japanese retreated, you know, they stopped getting a hold of this platinum. But that account that I read out and, and these dates don't seem to drive because again, at the very soonest the war would have broke out in 1941, and the Japanese would have withdrawn. And all of my understandings is it was more like 44 at the earliest, so it just doesn't add up these dates. And oftentimes, when you're dealing with stories and tales like this, dates and times and that get very confusing. Now, no one has ever made a public, a single shipping manifest, or any other piece of documentation proving that any platinum actually left Pohnpei during the Japanese control of the islands. The main modern claim for this is often cited as Eric von Daniken. Now, that's the writer of Chariots of the Gods and the mentor of Giorgio Tsoukalos. Yes, this Giorgio Tsoukalos. Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. Now, folks, there's another potential explanation for any treasure that is involved in Nanmadal and Ponape in general. Now, I only just found this out in researching this program. So, again, I'm always learning and always... My knowledge base is always evolving thanks to researching these topics as well. This one is straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Now there was a gentleman named Cannibal Jack, and he was an outlaw sailor who got his nickname because of the many islands he lived on while roaming the Pacific. Sometime in his roaming, he was at Ponape. However, there was much said about this man. What was true and what was an exaggeration is anyone's guess. Now this would have been in the early 1800s, folks. It is possible he was in Sydney at the time and in the Parramatta Asylum for the Old and Destitute around the early 1850s. After a lifetime of adventures, he eventually died on Mare Island in the Loyalty Group, which was located south of the Solomon Islands, in or around 1880. His letters tell of cannibalism, murdering of ships' crews, and murdering between the pirates infesting the island of Ponape. The old ruin was in effect a taboo place for all of the natives, so a safe place to live on the island during a time that to sleep could mean never waking up again at all. They plundered money and treasure, and they hid it in the old tombs on Nan Madal, this being the pirates, as the natives would never dare to enter the ruins. The natives of the islands worked with the beachcombers and pirates. The beachcombers and pirates stole money and gold, but had no place to spend their ill-gotten wealth, so over several years and several ship massacres, the treasure built up. The natives were more practical, and they stole items of use like tools and other items william diaper arrived toward the end of this era and tells of a war between the white men over the gold and one group with a couple of islanders from another island removed the treasure from ponipe in an insurrection such was the greed for gold the group moved east to another island under the protection of only one king in another stone city i wonder how many realize that there are more than one city like Nan Madol in the Caroline Island groups, and there are several of these megalithic cities. None as awe-inspiring as Nan Madol. Now, here's my input on this, folks, and in and around these platinum coffins, and some of the questions and mysteries surrounding them. Now, I can think of several reasons that platinum could have been exported secretly, or within a small group. So, only a small group having found out. What if this platinum? did not go to Japan, but instead it went to Japanese-occupied areas like Singapore or the Philippines, or later on it was moved to the Philippines after 1941 when the Japanese took control, to become part of Yamashita's gold. Now, what is Yamashita's gold, you may ask? When most people think of organized theft and looting during World War II, they think of the Nazis, of course, and with good reason. However, the IJA, which was the Imperial Japanese Army, was just as, if not more ruthless and efficient, in their methodical pillaging of southeast asia during the war from silver tea sets on island plantations to items of national and religious treasure no item was too big or too small to escape the ruthless pillaging by the ija upon the defeat of the u.s and filipino forces by the japanese the philippine government in manila dumped millions of dollars in silver peso coins into the harbor in an effort to hide them from the japanese Word got out, however, that the IJA employed captured American naval divers to recover many of these coins, and that is a fact. Now, General Tomoyuki Yamashita was known as the Tiger of Malay due to his bold and decisive capture of the Malay Peninsula in Singapore in 1941. He was based in the Philippines from late 1944 until the end of the war. According to these legends, Yamashita oversaw the hiding and burial of a vast hoard of treasure from this systematic looting in caves and tunnels all over the Philippine Islands. According to various accounts, the loot was initially concentrated in Singapore and later transported to the Philippines. The Japanese hoped to ship the treasure from the Philippines to the Japanese home islands after the war had ended. As the war in the Pacific progressed, however, US Navy submarines and Allied warplanes inflicted increasingly heavy sinkings of Japanese merchant shipping. Some of these ships carrying war booty back to Japan were sunk in combat, and again, that's a fact. The most common stated number is approximately 175 different caches varying in size from a few boxes of treasure up to literal tons of gold and silver. The plan, according to these stories, was that the Japanese hoped to ship the treasure from the Philippines to the Japanese home islands after the war had ended surreptitiously or in secret or alternatively, for the imperial family to recover the gold. Allegedly, this was overseen and managed by a secret society called Golden Lily, purportedly no less a figure than Emperor Hirohito's own brother oversaw this group. The estimated value of this treasure ranges from billions to even trillions of dollars in today's figures. Well, this should be easy enough to solve, right? What did the Tiger of Malay have to say? Not much, as he was hung in early 1946 for his alleged role in war crimes during the war. Whatever he knew, he took with him to the grave. There have been many stories of treasure recovered in the Philippines since the end of the war, and I have no doubt that at least some treasures were hidden here and elsewhere by the IJA, and yes, booby-trapped. I will be covering over Yamashita's gold in much greater depth in a later episode. Another possibility is the age-old motivation of human greed. Officers in charge of Ponape during the war may simply have commandeered small amounts of platinum, if you believe the earlier accounts of chunks versus whole coffins being discovered, and either taken them back to Japan or elsewhere, or buried or hid them in the surrounding islands. Never underestimate the power of human greed, my friends. And the last and most mundane explanation for these lapses in shipping records and, and others is that simply World War II. I don't have the time or the resource to deep dive into what records survived but i can tell you this over 60 major japanese cities were obliterated by u.s firebombing and general lame was meticulously working his way down the list when the war ended as most japanese houses at the time were built of highly flammable construction whole cities burnt to the ground including tokyo which was firebombed repeatedly I don't know where the Japanese stored the records in question, but they would have been paper as were almost all records at that time worldwide. So, you know, who would have thought when we started talking about this megalithic city in the western edge of the Pacific that we were going to get into, you know, everything from Japanese secret societies to purported platinum coffins to curses and hexes and ghosts. But folks, I've got another one for you here. Because it just keeps going on and on and this isn't even the last or the strangest claim now as you would assume when you're talking about something the size and the shape of nanmadal and when i post some photos you'll get a much better idea just by looking at it many people as i say you know when you hear the term cyclopean so that's another term for a lot of these megalithic or you know these huge stone sites cyclopean is because you know you would think that a cyclops would have built it which is another you know type of giant so it should not be any surprise that there are claims of Giants being involved in the building of Nan Madol as I say so in the early 20th century when the island was under German rule Governor Victor Berg entered the sealed tomb of Nan Madol and opened the coffin of the ancient island rulers he found skeletons of Giants two to three meters tall now, I've already discussed this. The next morning, on April the 30th, 1907, after a stormy night, Governor Berg died. The German physician serving on the island could not determine the cause of his death. The natives, however, were certain it was a curse that proved that supernatural powers guarded the city of the dead. Who were the giants who some say built Medal and mysteriously vanished? The Pohnpei people believed them to be the natives of the vanished continent Amu, sunk into the Pacific Ocean during a great calamity 12,000 years ago. Myths have evolved over time about the tenets of Nanmadal and three distinct races of giants. A human-like species capable of flight, a simian race of giants who could fly and live under the sea, and a third strain of megagiants, best described as worker drones, who labored beneath the sea. In the early 1900s, researchers recorded a popular legend about the Kona, a cannibalistic race of giants. The Japanese reportedly did discover very large human bones at Nan Madol, indicating that the previous inhabitants of the islands were perhaps as tall as 2.1 meters, which is 7 feet. An old Pohnpei native told me while I was there that he had found a human femur many years ago in the jungle that was twice as big as a normal man's. This suggests a rather unbelievable height of 10 feet or so, making the early inhabitants giants. Now, this was not me, my friends. This was someone. You know who said that when they were there one of the natives told them that so be under no illusions that i've had the chance to go to ponipe now here's another fascinating claim on giants now this one is a bit hard to follow along because i tried to follow the source link and i couldn't find the source link so it kind of cuts off abruptly and i would say this has been translated from russian many of the russian materials that i've found in the past on all sites all sorts of unexplained and paranormal type subjects the translation doesn't always come out the best in english so please bear with me russian expedition of divers led by andrei makarevich explored the lost underwater city of nanmedol the conclusion of the russian team the lost underwater city of nanmedol was built in antediluvian times twelve thousand bc by giants who came from the north Two six-plus-meter-high poles of the city gate were found underwater in Nan Madol. Note: In 1978, archaeolo- archaeologists William S. Ayers, Alan E. Hahn, and Craig Severance have uncovered human bones that belong to people considered larger than the Micronesians who live there today. American team measured skeletons and their bones, cre- created Ponair archaeological survey research of the site put bones back into the Nanmadal grave and kept the silence since. First discovered in the early 1800s by European sailors, this baffling and immense megalithic stone city may contain evidence for the fabled lost continent of Mu or Lemuria. This mysterious Nanmadal is built entirely out of gigantic magnetized basalt crystals. Pay attention. Now that is something that is going to come up again shortly. Magnetized basalt. Some weighing as much as 50 tons. Now folks, again... If you you know think that all of that is strange, and it is, wait until you hear this, this one, what's coming up next. It's really a mind-blowing theory that I'd never heard of. And as always, I keep an open mind. Now, there are others that believe Nan Madol was never inhabited at all. It has always been a giant machine, a machine that controlled the weather. Now, I found the following post on ATS, which stands for Above Top Secret. And that's an excellent website, folks. Now, I will post a link in the show notes for you so you can go over and follow this thread if you would so like. But I'm basically going to read it verbatim, not counting the comments, but just the actual first post. And again, I only heard about this, uh, you know, within the last couple of days while I've been doing this research. So the user's name was Sorensen, S-R-S-E-N. I am posting it again here to let you see what you guys think of it. So he was saying that he posted this thread before and he didn't get a lot of information, so he's reposted it. I want to gauge A.T. thoughts on possible ancient technology from, in my opinion, the Lemurian civilization that existed sometime in the last 5,000 to 15,000 years. The greatest former civilization is said to have existed in the Pacific region and is thought to have been wiped out after a series of cataclysms slowly sunk it beneath the Pacific Ocean. The Ancient Weather Manipulation Structure Technology is Nanmedal, situated on the shores of Pohnpei in Micronesia. The Below is a compilation of Frank Joseph's work from his book, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, and other research. The below explains one potential reason for nanmedal which in my opinion could only be the result of a past civilization which worked with the earth not against it as we do to achieve amazing results it appears to be lemurian technology at work nanmedal is built on a coral reef only 5 feet above sea level between the equator and the 11th parallel it features 250 tons of prismatic magnetized basalt spread over 170 acres the basalt is magnetized in a highly unusual and unnatural manner. This is an important and intentional effect. The average weight of each stone slab is five tons, with some weighing up to 25 tons each. And again, I've also commented on here I've seen 60 tons, I've seen 80 tons, I've seen 90 tons. Now, as an aside about this magnetized stone, I completely forgot about it until I got to this part of my research. I saw an, a program. From the u.s and i think it was from the history channel and i want to say it was ancient aliens and they basically went to nanmadal to check it out and they had an underwater rov or a remote operating vehicle like a camera and you know you'll see these little yellow submersibles with a tether cord and they were using it to try and film underwater and try and see if they could find this supposed underwater city that you know you've had these people talking about like the russian Comments just a bit before. You know, that was about saying that the underwater city was 12,000 years old, not necessarily the Nan Madal itself. Now, in this episode that I watched, this ROV failed. And it didn't just like, you know, it was tethered. So it had a power source. It wasn't a battery powered one. They had to pull it in physically and then they sent out their second rov and it failed and they felt that it had something to do with this magnetic field in and around all of this basalt so again for better or for worse whatever you think it's just another fascinating block in the wall of nanmedal okay so back to our story several attempts to date nanmedal have been carried out using carbon 14 dating techniques in the 1960s scientists from the smithsonian institute Tested residue inside what they deduced was a turtle oven and came up with a habitation period of twelve eighty five AD. Additional testing on nearby ash layers showed it was older by two hundred years, so that would be one thousand eighty five. Broader thermoluminescence testing on broken pottery shards found both bef- below artificial fill at Nanmadal's Dafu Inlet Islet, sorry, dated to two thousand years ago. However, Pottery has never been known to be used on or near the island, and the natives have no knowledge whatsoever of pottery. Additionally, the only thing these tests actually prove is that someone ate eternal at Nan Madol in the 13th century, and that someone dropped a jug there at the time of Christ. It is in no way gives a construction date for Nan Madol. Now again, folks, this is this poster's thoughts. I've seen some commentary in the comment threads on this saying, what are you talking about? They use pottery in the, uh, you know, in the Carolines and, you know, it's definitely been used on Ponape." I don't know. Again, I'm just presenting it as he's written it. Sea Level Analysis, Study of Ocean Floor Sediment, and Examination of Surrounding Semi-Submerged Ruins at the Base of Nan Madol and in the Surrounding Waters of Nan Madol put the approximate date for construction at approximately 12,000 years ago. The basic concept is that the last time that Nan Madol's underwater ruins would have been on dry land and above sea level is approximately 12,000 years ago. So unless some of it was intended to be built underwater, then I don't see how this could be wrong. Conventional mainstream scholars have failed to determine how it was made, who built it, and when it was built, for what purposes it was built, and where the building materials came from. It is positioned roughly halfway between Hawaii and the Philippines at the location where several severe storms and typhoons are generated every year when cold air is brought into contact with the warm waters of the Caroline Islands. Many severe storms originate from Nanmadol's location. This is no coincidence. Because severe stones originate there, it is very rarely hit by these storms, making it the safest, safest location in the Pacific. Now, the major effects of which contribute to typhoons and hurricanes, is electromagnetic energy, not water temperature. See Joseph Newman's work below. Temperature is important, obviously, but is secondary. Nanmidal and Kosrae, a similar structure to Nanmidal, also located in the Federated States of Micronesia, create a 300-mile-long zone in which typhoons are born, and the first stages of their power and severity are developed. The storms soon grow much larger and wind up ravishing the Philippines. Until recently, they were thought to be the exclusive result of masses of cold air convectored into conflict with water's warmer temperatures. Mainstream meteorologists believe cyclones are produced during a three-step process by the initial intensity of the storm, temperature changes in the area it brings about, and subsequent heat exchange with the ocean. However, late in last century, Joseph Newman declared that the major effect in respect to hurricanes is electromagnetic. For a hurricane to remain a hurricane, it does not depend solely on the heat of the water over which it travels. Proof. The average temperature of the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, 20 miles off the Louisiana coast, is as follows. July 82 degrees Fahrenheit. August 87. September 82. October 76. November 66. If what the weather experts said were true, the greatest number and most destructive hurricanes would always occur in July and August. Not true. Fact. The peak hurricane season is only in September, not July or August. September and October have 300% more hurricanes of greater destruction than July or August. Even November has 80% as many hurricanes as July and August. Therefore, Newman deducted that temperature was of secondary importance in the production of hurricanes, adding that electromagnetism was the major important factor. Platinum and silver bars were found within Nan Madol. So what powers it? Ponape, the island attached to Nanmadal was unique and has unique and constant subtle seismic activity. Seismic activity generates piezoelectricity. The piezoelectricity works with the strangely magnetized basalt to focus a concentrated coronal discharge skyward. Conclusion. Now considering the location of Nanmadal, the unique and intentionally Altered magnetism of basalt and the layout of the ruin, it can easily be argued that nanmadal was an ancient weather manipulation technology used to diffuse dangerous storms before they could build up. The coronal discharge set off by the magnetized basalt, which is generated by piezoelectricity sourced by the island's constant subtle seismic activity, means that nanmadal could react with the storm's electromagnetic elements and effectively diffuse the storm. Do further research if you doubt it, but it makes sense. Remember that this is a summarized version of over 50 pages in Joseph's book mentioned before. Much greater detail is available. Let's use this thread to list and discuss anyone else's theories as to what's, why's, or when's of Nan Madol. Let's lay them out in the table table below now. But consider there is some 200 million metric tons of stone built on a coral reef surrounded by ocean. If built by natives with no serious construction technology, then how did they do it? I believe this once again goes back to ancient lost technologies and potentially frequent manipulation and acoustic resonance. See Hutchinson effect for someone who may be possibly rediscovering this technology. Let's resist the temptation to turn this into a a debate on whether or not past civilizations ever existed. The thread mentioned previously has great discussions on them. I'm more interested in what people think about Nan Madol. So again, you know, this was quite an interesting thread and something I'd never considered. Is it probable? No. Is it impossible? No. But yeah, it just goes to show, folks, there are all kinds of theories out there in the world about all sorts of things. So what does that leave us with? We have got this fascinating ruined city of Nanmadol, built out of these black basaltic stones that weigh anywhere upwards of 50 60 80 90 tons we've got legends of platinum coffins giants buried treasure all sorts of things magic dragons you name it and you know where does the truth lie what is the truth where are the facts is was it simply built by an ancient people that didn't record what they did and later people came along and could see no other way it was built except for by magic or by giants was it built by sorcerers that you know quote unquote sorcerers that had some type of archaic knowledge that the ponipeans did not know about something like being able to control acoustic waves or similar was it built by a lost civilization was it built by giants who knows folks I wanted to bring this to your attention and I hope that you've really enjoyed it because it's been a fascinating episode for me to research. I've always been fascinated by Nan Madal. The fact that H.P. Lovecraft was intrigued by it as well is just another feather in the cap of this site for me. I'd love to get to go one day. It is very out of the way. It's not something that has a lot of other tourist destinations around it. Uh, It's like a much larger scale of the Taj Mahal. Oftentimes, people say you go to Agra, and all that's there is the Taj Mahal, really. And it would be this kind of same thing with Nan Madal, and it is way off the beaten path. But maybe, just maybe, one day, I'll get a chance. Maybe if one of you wins the lottery, you can send me, because I would love to be your roving reporter that would get to go and see some of these things. Now, folks, this has been a very long episode, as you can tell. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I found it fascinating. I've really enjoyed it and I've really got to deep dive into it. Now I've made an executive decision, look folks, I need a week off to recharge my batteries. So two weeks from now, you'll get another show and I will announce it on social media. But with everything going on with William and with the time it's taken with the show and everything else, I need a, uh, I just need a week off to recharge my batteries and focus on myself and some other things. I'll still be around, you know, if you want to get a hold of me, again, get a hold of me through social media. You can get a hold of me through email. You can go to the website. I'll be around. But, you know, I just need a chance to uh, recharge my batteries after being sick and with everything else that 2020 has thrown at us all. So with that, my friends, I do wish you all the best. I hope that wherever you're hearing my voice, everything goes great for you. I hope that you have a great two weeks. And as always, I'll leave you with a quote from the late, great Art Bell. And that quote is a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.